0: We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created.
1: You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think.
2: And welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley, my host as usual, Joe Quinn. Hello there. This is an extra special, Christmas special episode of Behind the Headlines, because we're interviewing Laura. Welcome back to you, Laura. Hi. Where are Jingle Bells? We need some sleigh bells in the background, no? Darn it. Rudolph, go ahead. I forgot to introduce the date. For reference, today's date is Sunday 20th of December, 2015. Mm -hmm. Laura, you were last on when we spoke with Robert Price about five months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Robert's among the best researchers out there to have deconstructed the myth of Jesus. But the explanation that there was no Jesus, in quotes, as described in the Gospels, still leaves us with many unanswered questions. Not least, how in the name of all things sane did a major world religion grow out of that myth? You recently finished a book, which is titled. Have you chosen the title for your new book?
0: Well, it's uh, it's got a working title, okay. uh, but we're not sure if that's going to be the finished title. And it's uh, Josephus, Pilate, and Paul. It's just a matter of time speculations
2: <laughs> it to matter it's a matter of, of out. time yeah cue Randy Travis right there yeah. the subtitle I got here is observations and speculations on parameters for a historical Pauline chronology and a solution to quote who was Jesus yeah that's pretty that's, much what it is that's a long subtitle yeah
0: I know that's why I said it's not sure that that's going to be the mm. the finished title I mean, the book is finished. It's just right now, and uh, it's being worked over by a copy editor and uh, having the index built, and the bibliography is being constructed, and all the footnotes are being standardized. So it's 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 basically finished. I mean, I'm done with it. You're done. I'm done.
2: It could be ready then for purchasing the new year?
0: Oh, it could be ready pretty quick, yeah. Okay.
2: We'll keep you all posted. Listeners, mm-hmm.
0: y'all. Excuse me for a second. I want to ask these guys how come <clears throat> my headphones aren't working too well. I, I really don't. <laughs> is that any better? Oh, that works. How's that? That's much better.
2: There you go. You sorted it. Out. Oh,
0: jeez.
2: You've written how many books now, Laura?
0: I, uh, I think this is 16, sixteen or seventeen.
2: How long did you spend researching this latest one?
0: Uh, About five years. Well, actually my whole life, but in a concentrated way for, you know, the last five years, I've been um, kind of following trails and and, and I kept narrowing the the search. You know, at first I was searching in all different directions, you know, with a specific idea in mind, excuse me, because if you don't have a specific idea in mind, uh, you don't really know what you're looking for. And you you still don't know what you're looking for, but you you have an idea and you're looking. And this idea, um, uh, well, it started out with just uh, trying to sort out the idea. I mean, how, the question you ask: How the heck could a world religion, you know, come out of um, somebody who didn't exist? Mm-hmm. Because at that point, it was like, you know, I didn't. Uh, uh, Really believe that Jesus existed anymore. I mean, the the Jesus mythicists had uh, done a pretty thorough job, and I'd read all their works, and uh, I was pretty convinced that uh, you know there was there had been no Jesus, and if there was, there was some, you know, maybe some itinerant preacher or whatever. But I still couldn't, you know, that that didn't make any sense. So okay,
2: is that what you're trying to nail in this book? who this itinerant might have been uh
0: not exactly no. no because it i mean that's that's where it started and i was just uh um and i thought I, I thought i might find something you know in the historical record but the the thing is is that i got diverted uh off of this uh topic onto uh, the problem of the uh, uh, of the destruction you know, the fall and destruction of the Roman Empire. And I noticed when I was reading a lot of the texts that uh, a lot of the pagans accused the Christians of being the cause of the destruction. Uh, They said, you know, as soon as the empire converted over to Christianity, everything went down very fast, and you're you're the reason all these terrible things are happening to us. If we hadn't given up the old gods, we wouldn't be suffering this way. And, of course, they were writing about some pretty serious things. And um, if you read the chroniclers of the 5th and 6th century, uh, you know, you read some pretty horrific stuff, you know, earthquakes, tsunamis, you know, plagues, pestilence. Uh, and if you look at the archaeological reports, you see that the the empire went from, you know, a certain level of population and activity <clears throat> to something like, you know, a cut of 90%. So that's a pretty drastic uh, situation, and at least in the Western Empire. The Eastern Empire went down pretty quickly after that. But there was this thing hanging out in the air there that these pagans were accusing the Christians of being the cause of the decline and fall and destruction of the empire, which kind of amounted to the deaths of 90% of the people. And 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 really horrific events. So I wanted to chronicle this. I wanted to I wanted to find out because there was an idea in my head that if there was some relationship between this I mean it was a crazy idea. Is there some relationship between this imposition of Christianity or this uh adoption of Christianity by an entire political uh um entity, an empire, <clears throat> and the subsequent total and complete destruction of that empire. Uh, is there is there anything there? So I started to uh, collect the information. I started reading all the uh, chronicles and putting these things together. And uh, this, it, it got pretty involved because those who read my stuff, they know I get really obsessed with details and being very precise. So I started databasing things. And that meant that, you know, I would create tables and I would put in dates and then I would include in the column, you know, or different columns, you know, different kinds of events. But this was very primitive. It, it was really kind of a primitive database, you know, just like a, an Excel spreadsheet. And at some point... Um, I made some interesting discoveries that I'm not going to get into here because they're really complicated, but um I noticed that there were correspondences between uh, uh political events and uh, what what you'd call cataclysmic events because there were there were a lot of really weird things going on back then and um I was just going along chronicling and at a certain point, you know, I mean I, I kind <clears> of <throat> I kind of uh swept past the you know, the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the uh principate. Uh that is Caesar followed by, you know, more civil war and then Augustus took over. And I think I dealt with Caesar in approximately two or three paragraphs in this. Uh, How yeah. could you? Well, that was, oh. I mean, you know, you think of, of Caesar and you think, uh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I went along and very quickly, and I was writing this, writing all this down and collecting this data together, very quickly, the, the issue of the uh, religion of Mithras came, uh, under my eye. And so I stopped and I read, oh, maybe half a dozen books and 50 papers or so about Mithraism because I wanted to get a really good feel for it. I wanted to be able to condense, you know, the best and latest and, uh, most pertinent information about Mithraism. And, uh, I started tracking that and it struck me as odd that, you know, Mithraism was such a big thing for such a long time and then it kind of virtually disappeared and then Christianity came to the fore in a big way. And this was like between the reigns of Di- Diocletian and um Constantine because uh when Diocletian and his other co-emperor Maxim Maxim Maximian or Max Maximinus whichever one there were several Maximini many, many people uh when he came out of retirement to try to sort out Constantine's issues he and his buddies you know the four emperors they all went up somewhere and they built an altar erected an altar to uh Mithra Mithras and uh then that was kind of like it then Constantine went over Christianity so, and I knew that the character of of this Diocletian, he was a pretty good guy. I mean, he he really did kind of uh, bring home the bacon there for the empire because they were really falling apart. And that's assuming you even think that an empire ought to have its bacon brought home, mm-hmm. which which I don't necessarily think. But all things considered, uh, he straightened things out. So I stopped right there and I said, I really need to find out the root of Mithraism. And I know y'all are wondering where this is going to go, but uh, we'll get there. Just just be patient. And uh, I started going even deeper, reading all the original sources, as many as I could. And I discovered that the earliest mention of Mithras was um, in relationship to pirates in the Mediterranean during the time of Julius Caesar. And in fact... His uh, a one-time son-in-law Pompeius Magnus was given a special command to deal with these pirates. Caesar himself allegedly was captured by pirates when he was uh, a young man and on his way to Rhodes. And he—it's a, a funny story because he was captured by these pirates. They took him to their uh, their stronghold, and <clears throat> you can imagine all kinds of things. And he was very imperious with them and told them that their partying was uh, preventing him from getting good sleep or interfering with his studies or whatever and they were laughing at him laughing at him he says well you can laugh now but you know when i when i'm uh, when i get out of this i'm going to come back and crucify all of you and they laughed at that and so <clears throat> apparently his friends put up the money to pay his uh um for his redemption he got away and as soon as he got away he went and collected some guys together got a ship went back got the pirates and crucified them <clears throat> and the funny thing about it was was that they'd said oh we're going to ask this much money for your uh uh for your ransom and he said oh no 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 that's not nearly enough you must ask you know double triple the amount and they did and they got it but then of course when he went back and crucified them he, he got all the money so there was this funny story about Caesar and pirates, and then there were some passages in Plutarch about pirates and their uh, silver oars and golden or purple sails and so forth, and then there were passages about Antony and Cleopatra that had you know, almost the same words. It was probably stock phrases, but it got me to wondering. And I went back, and I looked at Caesar, and I said... Uh, you know what does he have to do with Mithras? I mean, did Caesar create Mithraism? I wondered. I mean, did he start it as some sort of you know military religion because he was famous for the uh, for the fact that his soldiers adored him and would you know go to their deaths willingly for him, no matter where he led. He did. You know, they were following him. They were you know absolutely loyal.
2: And he was always successful in battle.
0: Not always um. you know, not always successful in battle, but nearly always and and he could take a loss and and turn it into something beneficial <clears throat> but anyway, I started wondering if Caesar as part of his plan to save the empire similar to what Diocletian had done i mean they seemed like they were very kind of similar individuals in a sense. I wondered if he had had it in his mind that this you know, he'd created some kind of a cultic thing for soldiers and maybe he was planning to spread it through the whole empire and unify everybody under a single religion. I mean, that was just what I wondered. And so I started I decided I had to read everything I could about Caesar to see if he was at the root of Mithraism. This is what I started with. Is Caesar somehow because he's connected to these pirates who were the first who were alleged to have been known to be performing the rites to Mithras, you know, was was there somehow some kind of connection between Caesar and Mithraism? And that's all I was asking at that point. So I began to read everything I could get my hands on about Caesar, just to see if there was any hint, any action he had ever performed, every any law he had ever passed, any comment he had ever made by anybody ever at any time that would have indicated that he had it in his mind to start a new religion. That's what I started with. So I started, and that's when everything kind of got really weird because, you know, uh, reading everything about Caesar can take a little while. But... uh, I read and I read book after book after book after book, uh, hundreds hundreds of uh, scholarly papers and and I got my hands on obscure books and and so on and and uh, you know Cambridge companions and Oxford companions and the latest research and da 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 and it was really odd because at one point I was reading. Book by Stephen Weinstock called *Divus Julius*, and this takes you through Caesar's life in in kind of a thematic approach. Uh, like each section of the book deals with a certain aspect of what Caesar was famous for. You know, like his his uh, as as a general, <clears throat> or as a legislator, or as a you know, as a an advocate for the people or you know his mercy you know different different things you know all the the things the godlike qualities that were attributed to him, and story after story was being told, and of course Weinstock was analyzing them, and he was saying, "Well, you know this may or may not have been true, you know this is the best information we can get da 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 you know the usual scholarly thing, and the crazy thing was was that there was story after story that sounded like the life of Jesus, you know the gospels I mean at one point there was he he went somewhere to perform some ceremonial thing you know some the Alban hills, and he and part of the ceremonial thing was for him to walk from there into Rome wearing these red boots, which were uh some kind of outfit of, of of a god or a or high priest or something, and he and of course he was Pontifex Maximus. He was the, the chief priest of Rome. And so he's walking into Rome, and all the people gather along the sides of the road, and they're shouting and hailing Caesar and waving palm branches and putting palm branches down on the ground for him to walk on.
3: <clears throat>
0: and the palm branch, of course, was a symbol of victory for the Romans. It was not necessarily any kind of big sim- symbol for. Uh, the Jews or Judeans—it was—it was a Roman thing. So I wondered, well, you know, where did that story about Jesus and the palm branches and all the hosannas and everything come from? I mean, it was obviously modeled on this event where Caesar came into Rome and all the people were gathered and they were uh, hailing Caesar and, and throwing palm branches on the ground. And then there were there were other things. And then uh, I, so I, you know, I started thinking, well, you know. This is really weird because uh here he's got these various things in his life story that uh, you know seem to me to have been models for the uh for the story of Jesus, the gospel stories. And on top of that, you know, he was betrayed by somebody he cared very much about and and murdered. But, you know, of course, that's as far as I could see it at that point. It didn't seem to me like there was anything much further than that. <clears throat> so, but it 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 was bugging me because I said, I came down to breakfast one day and I said, you know, you guys are going to think I'm crazy because, you know, this guy, this Julius Caesar, who I before that had never known all that much about, you know, his life is like the model for the life of Jesus. And here I was just talking about certain events, you know, were there were very um, striking parallels. So <clears throat> I thought I was crazy, and then we went off on a trip, and I talked to some people about it while we were on the trip, and then I came back because the whole time we were on this trip, I was thinking about it. So when I got home... Um, my sister-in-law decided to do a search on the Internet to see if anybody else had ever come up with the idea that, you know, there was any uh, similarities between the life of Jesus and the life of Caesar. And she discovered that there was some guy named Francisco, Francesco,
2: or Francisco? Um, Francesco, Francesco Carada. 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 Carada.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and he uh, had this idea himself. And... uh and I don't know exactly where he came to. Do you? Disney, do you or y'all remember where he came to the idea from? I, it was. I think it was from the Passion Play. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, his his funeral, Caesar's funeral.
0: Yeah, he he had this whole idea that Caesar's funeral was so remarkably similar to um, the Passion of Jesus that he, you know, that's the point that he took off from. Well, I hadn't even gone to that part. I was just all you know, just about the life, you know, the certain actions and 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 Caesar's mercy being so pronounced because Weinstock has a whole section in the book about, you know, Caesar's mercy and his uh his forgiveness and his his uh intention to initiate a new way of being for society and for you know, political interactions and so forth, and, and so <clears throat> so anyway, I looked at uh, Karata's stuff, and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And then I found that there was uh, there were a couple of historians who made, you know, just very glancing notes about some of these similarities. And then there was one guy who wrote a who wrote a book in Italian. I can't remember his name right offhand, but uh, he had a whole chapter on, uh, you know, Caesar being like Jesus. Although he didn't draw, you know, the obvious conclusion from that. He just made note of it that Caesar was, you know, a great guy just like Jesus. Yeah. And uh, so... And there was there was that, and then there. So then that kind of got me going again, and I decided I had to read, you know, because it just seemed to me that if Caesar was the model for the life of Jesus, who I now no longer, you know, I mean, I, I didn't believe existed at all, except as a myth or a myth overlaid on some itinerant holy man, maybe. I mean that was as as far as I could take it um, surely there must be some way or you know how did how did it get turned into a Jewish thing? I mean, how the heck did that happen and that's when the biblical studies began, and the biblical studies now I've done biblical studies to you know a very moderate extent for you know off and on for years but here I was proposing to myself I really need to get into this deeply 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 and I need to read both sides so I started the biblical studies and oh four or five additional bookshelves later <laughs> and that's not counting the hundreds of papers I mean those are just the books <clears throat> uh I came to the conclusion that the way that happened was via the apostle paul paul was the one because you know i mean you, you know paul is like the originator of christianity so paul did it paul is the one who made a jewish jesus more or less or so it seemed to me and that meant that i had to really look into the life of paul and of course that meant learning everything I could. I mean, I'd already been through, you know, just tons of Roman history, you know, history of the empire, everything I could, uh, I mean, just everything I could get my hands on from a historical perspective, reading all the original texts plus texts about the texts and books about the text, about the texts, et cetera. So then I started getting into Pauline studies and I looked and looked and looked and I read and read and read. And I realized after all this reading that Paul was indeed the guilty party, but the question was, did he do it on purpose or was it an accident or just exactly what was going on in his head? I needed to know what was going on in his head, and that meant you know, going to the Pauline epistles and reading every analysis of them I could get my hands on to find everybody's point of view to see if there was anything in there that was useful. And lo and behold, there was. But of course, at the same time, I was reading all of these other, uh, everybody and his brother has a theory about who Jesus may or may not have been. You know, there's Jesus the magician, there's the Passover plot, there's uh, uh uh, what was this? Joseph Atwill he wrote one.
2: Um, Et to Judas? This one? No.
0: No, 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 no. That's uh, Joseph Atwill. Caesar's Caesar's Messiah or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, Joseph uh, Atwill. Well, you know, the thing was was Atwill wrote this book Caesar's Messiah, and he noticed that there was so much uh, similarity between uh, the Gospels and Acts and Josephus. That obviously, you know, somebody who was associated with Josephus or, uh, must have been responsible for it, and therefore he concocted this theory that Josephus and Titus, Emperor Titus, and and this little group of, uh, you know, uh, merry pranksters uh, wrote the Gospels to, you know, do do a, a joke on everybody. And the proof is is the relationship between uh, the gospel stories and Uh, the history of early Christianity in in the book of Acts and Josephus. Well, um, that meant I had to read Josephus and every analysis of Josephus, I could get my hands on to see, you know, just exactly what was going on in acts and so on and so forth. And then there was high Maccabee and his, um, his analysis of the Jesus problem that, uh, uh, Jesus was created by the Apostle Paul because, you know, Jesus was obviously a Pharisee. Paul was not. Paul was a fraud. And then there was Elaine Hilsenrath, who wrote an interesting book, Jesus the Nazorian, uh, And she analyzed the gospel text, and she came to the conclusion that uh, Jesus was a son of Judas the Galilean. And then there was this uh clever guy, um what's his name? Uh Unterbrink Unterbrink in his book, uh Judas the Galilean or Judas Judas the Messiah Judas the Galilean, I think. Um, where, you know, his idea was that uh Judas basically was the model for Jesus. G- Judas was Jesus and uh and he went to and of course everything else you know paul was evil paul was a liar and this is uh robert eisenman's idea that paul was the liar in the dead sea scrolls and of course they get into a lot of the dead sea scrolls and so on and so forth so i was taking in a whole heck of a lot of different points of view different theories etc cetera, etc cetera. and um at a certain point, I uh, I was sitting there for the umpteenth time with uh, Tacitus on one leg, and Josephus on the other, flipping back and forth between them, you know, matching the history. Because it it seemed to me that the only way to solve this is to come at it from a strictly historical perspective. You can't come at it with any kind of belief whatsoever. You've just got to see if there's anything historical here is there anything in our history that can explain the emergence of this of this myth this legend and if you were just a historian and you were looking at the history of our civilization and the fact that some religion came up and uh, you know people started believing in it and everything you would you would look at the history and you would as you would in any other uh, uh studying any other culture, when you come across the fairy tales, you might say, well, there might be a, um, you know, a seed of something in there about a real person, but, you know, this story uh, was formed in the usual manner of fairy tale formation. And there have been some sociological studies on how that happens, how a story about a real event, you know, can very quickly uh, become mythicized and I, I wrote about this in uh, in my book secret history, and I've mentioned it in other places you know that a a real event can be mythicized, and the person's name and everything can be just completely lost, and they they get a new name and they get a new role, and they do all kinds of things but here the question i mean like for example, if you're thinking about the Buddha now the Buddha is supposed to be the the godly name or you know the the role played uh by a certain individual, you know, there may have been more than one Buddha. But in the particular case of the one that we're familiar with, it supposedly was Prince Gotama.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: People know who Prince Gotama was and they know a little bit of a something about his life story and how he became the Buddha. And the same thing, you know, well Confucius, I mean that wasn't really a religion but it was it was a philosophy um, and then hinduism you know based on the vedas and uh, uh which you know can be studied but if you study these things you, you know as a historian or from outside the culture you don't study them with any belief mm mm-hmm. You you try to you, you say well <clears throat> this did or didn't have any historical basis or they just made this up or da 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 da, and I've already shown in my book The Horns of Moses um, that most religious myths originate in stories about cosmic events, things happening in the sky, you know, like comets and you know thunderbolts and and the activities of planets and so forth, and that's why they, you know, have this relationship. So if you're studying our history from the outside and you really wonder about this, it would be glaringly obvious what happened, that there was, except for the fact that you get this twist that Julius Caesar, who had the real life of Jesus who lived the real life of you know the events the major events told in the gospels, you know, somebody who was for the people and somebody who did this and that and the other thing and mercy and, and, and so on and betrayed and killed and raised up on a on a cross like object for his funeral and and all these different things that somehow his life got overlaid with this other material, and he became, you know, this Jewish, you know, itinerant preacher, whatever. With long hair and a beard. Right. And you wonder, how the hell did that happen? How did that happen? I mean, that's just insane. That's crazy.
2: In the span of 100 years, less?
0: Oh, uh, I would say it was, I would say it was um, 100 years, yeah, yeah. And then, so I started. I started really digging into this, and I was there, like I said, for the umpteenth time with um, Tacitus and Josephus on my lap, flipping back and forth, just looking for historical clues, clues, clues. Just a word, just and, and of course, the uh, Christian Church, being in charge of copying and preserving manuscripts for the last two thousand years, you can be certain that. Um, a lot of changes have been made and a lot of things have been destroyed and deleted and omitted, or they, oh, fuck, I just forgot to copy that chapter. I <laughs> you know? oh, lost my head there. So that was when uh, I made this little discovery that my book is kind of focused on, which is the fact that I am convinced and the book adduces uh, the evidence that Pontius Pilate was not in Judea from 26, 27 to, you know, 36 or 37 AD. He was, in fact, there from 14 or 15 to 19, which was just about four or five years. And he was, uh, I mean, that right there, I mean, just the evidence, and, and the evidence is pretty much there in Josephus if you work between Josephus wars and his antiquities and you know and work with that with Tacitus as your control your yardstick you find that it's pretty darn certain based on a whole pile of circumstantial evidence because of course there's no smoking gun i mean when you've got a text that has been manipulated and has been corrected uh, or had something added to it interpolated into it you know other people are going to argue oh that was original i mean you know but if you, but if you're if you're a believer you know you're going to argue for all of the the falseness of the text if you're not a believer you're going to say you know it's obvious that, that was added but in any event when you take pontius pilate out of the time period in which he is supposed to have been there when he's supposed to have uh, executed this this Jesus person for whom absolutely not a shred of evidence you know exists that, that he was a real person it it basically pulls the rug out from under the whole christian myth but the interesting thing about that is is that it then makes other things make a lot more sense because underbrink was right the model for jesus the jewish model was Judas the Galilean, and he was also right that uh, Paul was on about something else. But he was wrong that Paul was evil, and so is Eisenman about Paul being the liar. Paul wasn't was hardly on the on the radar of this group of radical revolutionaries because the early Christian church. So-called Christian Church of Jerusalem that's supposed to be, you know, the beginnings of Christianity, the followers of Jesus who were so amazed by his resurrection that they, uh, you know, that it, it overawed everybody and they converted thousands of people and they had the, the Pentecost business and the rushing winds and the flames of fire and everybody speaking in tongues and blah, blah, blah. It's all, it's all garbage. It's all made up, and it's all based on other stories, other tales that exist in other places. And the problem is is that um, the person who wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is probably the same person. Most scholars agree that it was the same person that wrote uh, the Acts of the Apostles. And the reason that these gospels and acts bear so much resemblance to the works of Josephus, as Atwell astutely noticed, is because they used Josephus to write their texts. And they also used Paul for, you know, Paul's uh, epistles for a lot of their doctrinal um, work. I mean, you, you know, people go along and they say, well, how come, you know, Paul, Paul says this and this, but, you know, Jesus never said that, but Paul says the Lord said it. And then, you know, why didn't Paul quote Jesus on this because if if you know if he'd been familiar with the story of Jesus he would have quoted him when he was trying to make a certain point but he never did and then on the other hand you find things that Paul said reappearing in the mouth of Jesus but Paul never gives Jesus credit for it well there's a reason for that it's because the Gospels were written after the fact many sayings of Jesus came from Paul and also interestingly some sayings of Jesus came from Julius Caesar and the life story of Jesus is largely the life story of Caesar the passion is that of Caesar and there's also some Paul in there there's also some um, episodes that are taken from uh, you know Homeric stories as uh, Dennis R MacDonald has shown in his books about the Gospels and There's a a big part of it that's formed up on the Elijah-Elisha narrative. Uh, Basically, the persons who were writing these texts were familiar with the rhetorical norms of the day. Uh, They were familiar with a certain literature, and they most definitely were really working Josephus. There are several scenes in Josephus, several uh, individuals, uh, whose typology was used. So, you know, Atwell is perfectly correct. You know, it's, there's, it's, it's there. Josephus is in the Gospels. Josephus is in the book of Acts. So are a lot of other texts. Um, then, of course, the question becomes, how did, how did this transition occur? And I have a theory about it, and it's in, in the book. That I've just written. I'm not going to tell you everything about the book. I mean, did you think I was going to tell you the whole thing? You got to read the book. Yeah. I mean, there's some things in there you got to read, but I think I've made a, a pretty darn good case for taking Pilate out of the picture, and what that, of course, means if you stop and think about it, <clears throat> that uh, you know, for 1,500 years, people have been standing up in church every Sunday and
2: reciting the Apostles' Creed, or the. I used to do it myself. Yeah, do you remember it? Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate.
0: <sighs> suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified,
2: died, and was buried. They descended to hell and all the rest of that stuff.
0: Yeah, so right there, included in the creed, is a lie.
2: Uh, a historical factually or historically provable life as far as the actual hard data, historical data goes. Yeah. Pilot was not, according to official uh, kind of records, the few that are available that you can rely on.
0: Or that you can infer.
2: Infer from. Right.
0: So it's, uh, that's pretty much what the book is about. And that's kind of, sort of the short version of how I got to it. And, you know what i did was i mean you have to deal with several a number of issues uh it's part of this book is is kind of technical i'm going to write a little bit more in the introduction to make make it easy for the for the novice or the newbie to jump right in there and and look at the evidence i'm laying out and i think you know about anybody can read what i've put together and draw their own conclusions um and as, as long as they're not just absolutely firmly convinced that, uh, you know, this, this creed you just recited, you know, they'll be all right. <laughs> you
2: know? Yeah. Well, what I wonder is, would they not say, well, how important is it that there's, the time that Pontius Pilate is in Jerusalem is actually two decades earlier?
0: Well, it's it's really important because the entire Jesus timeline absolutely depends on Pontius Pilate being there to crucify Jesus between 29 and 30 AD because that's when according to the whole timeline Jesus was crucified because he had to be crucified then in order you know because Paul I mean there's some there are some dates more or less
2: that pa- can't be moved
0: they can't yeah because Paul tells about a uh, An episode that he experienced, probably one of the only things where you can tie to a historical person from Paul's own mouth, and he says that when he was in Damascus, they were chasing him, and he was and his followers let him down over the wall in a basket so he could escape the governor of King Aretas of the Nabataeans, a historical person mentioned in the letters of Paul. Now, King Aretas died in forty hmm. so Paul had to have done had to have done this before Aretas died, and he also there's a certain amount of years that he tells in his story so you know when was Aretas the ruler of Damascus and Uh, When did Paul, you know, because, of course, you know, you have to you have to fit all these things in. He says I uh," he, he was persecuting the church. Then he got converted and then he spent three years in Arabia and then he went to Jerusalem for the first time. And then another period of time went by and he went to Jerusalem for the second time. And supposedly he was planning on going for a third trip. Uh, But all of these things have spatial distances between them, but the only one that has a hook that you can put onto a historical person is this King Aretas.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And the interesting thing is is there's a little problem there because uh, according to Josephus, John the Baptist uh, was executed in 36
2: AD. Which must come before Jesus' death.
0: Well, if Jesus was in 30 and John the Baptist was in 36, we have an impossible contradiction Mm -hmm. because supposedly, according to the Gospels, John the Baptist was executed during Jesus' lifetime. Mm -hmm. So we have just a wee bit of a problem there. Um, But in any event... You have to you have to fit Paul into this timeline, and this is something else that I do is, is I work out the Pauline timeline. But you see, I think what happened here is two things happened. First of all, Paul invented Jesus. He invented his his Caesar Jesus. I think Paul is teaching Caesar
2: as Jesus. So he never actually refers to someone called Jesus, does he?
0: Yeah, well, in a couple of places, Jesus is in there, and you get the impression it's been added. Okay. Because he always refers to Christ crucified, Christ on the cross. And apparently Paul had something pretty profound happen to him. So um, my speculation is is that Paul, the, the reason that the date for the... And you can you can find this in some of the early Christian literature, that they refer back to the time of the beginning of the gospel, not back to the time of crucifixion. In fact, the earliest Christian literature makes no mention whatsoever of an earthly Jesus of a real man or you know anybody who was even known. Make no mention whatsoever. They refer back to the beginning of their gospel, and if 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 my idea is correct that means that paul was converted in about 29 or 30 ad and somehow they got this mixed up they decided they had to find the right evil you know evil procurator of judea to do the the crucifying and somehow somewhere along the way uh pontius pilate was mentioned as having executed somebody who was very important to the Jews. So Pontius Pilate was obviously the one who did it. The only problem is, is Pontius Pilate executed Judas the Galilean in nineteen AD. And the Apostle Paul began his gospel in thirty AD and the two became conflated. Hmm. And that's the big problem.
2: Is it possible that what that Paul had some kind of spiritual experience?
0: Absolutely. I am I am not in agreement with those people who think that Paul was the liar of of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, what's his name, Eisenman. And I don't believe that Paul was mythical and that he himself was made up, you know, like the and that's Robert Price's Amazing Colossal Apostle. He is tending to, to the direction that even Paul was made up, but I don't I don't agree. Uh Paul You know, I I love Paul. I have a lot of respect for Paul. You know, does that make me a believer? No, because there was a long period of time I thought Paul was a freaking schizophrenic. I mean, how could somebody think some of the things that he thought and did some of the things? Well, anyhow, I, I write about that in the book, too. What was Paul really on about? And I think some of the best analysis of Paul's thinking was done by George Wells, Uh, in his series of five or six or seven books about Christianity. And he was a professor of German literature, I believe. So, of course, his ideas, which are some of the best ideas about the whole thing, um, have been completely marginalized because he wasn't a, quote, biblical scholar, unquote. Well, the problem with biblical scholars is, is most people become biblical scholars because they go to a biblical institute Uh, or to a major university that has a Bible studies program and they're... um,
2: They go because they believe. They're true believers.
0: They go because they believe and usually their education is paid for by their religious institutions. So they have a heavy investment in remaining believers and those that, you know stop being believers, you know, pay a pretty heavy price and there are several, you know, I mean Gerd Ludeman is one, he's one of the the, the best uh, out there and uh Thomas Brody uh, you know, they're you know really terrific scholars and they all came to the conclusion that Jesus never existed. Um so
2: but in in terms of Paul, so Paul has this um some kind of spiritual experience. Yeah. And it may even have been um
0: I think he I think he witnessed a Caesar passion play. Right. Because there was a cult of Caesar at the time and this is another one of the mysteries that kinda of dovetails into this is why why did the cult of Caesar disappear so completely at the same time that the whole Jesus thing came along mm-hmm. and what kind of audiences was Paul preaching to, and what about the diaspora Jews you know is this the church the
1: I dug up a dime, rare I dug up a diamond in a deep, dark mine If only I could cling to my beautiful fire I dug up a diamond in a deep, dark mine Down where and fine, I of up the time in the deep dark mountain. Down in the tide in the dirt and the grind, I of up the time.
2: Oh, sorry. Uh, Oh, sorry about that. Okay, I I give an intro there while we're muted. So we cut off there uh, for usual reasons, but we're back now. So Laura, carry on from where you were. You were talking about Paul, and he may have witnessed the passion play.
0: Well,
2: let let me sorry. Let me straighten this out here,
0: and I'm gonna work directly from my book text here. Uh, You know, the thing is, is that uh, Paul obviously knew the Messiah of the Jerusalem Ecclesia. And I refer to it as Ecclesia. Ecclesia has been translated as church uh, in most of our Bibles, but an Ecclesia back in those days was, you know, a a semi-political community, uh, religious organization. It was just a group of people in Ecclesia. Uh, But anyhow... He obviously knew the Messiah of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, but just as obviously, he wasn't much impressed by him or them. And this may be shocking, but it's true. He tells the Corinthians that they appear to be easily taken in by, quote, a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, end quote. And in the next breath, he refers to those, quote, super apostles, unquote, in a very sarcastic tone whom he then goes on to excoriate as, quote, false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. He's talking about, you got this, he's talking about these Jerusalem apostles. He's talking about Peter. He's talking about James. He's talking about John, Mm -hmm. because those were the only ones that he ever knew by name. There were no 12 disciples of Jesus in Paul's time. They didn't exist yet. They hadn't been invented yet. But here he's saying, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And this is where you get into the fact that this Jerusalem Ecclesia was a revolutionary organization, a la Dead Sea Scrolls type. They were radicals, they were followers of Judas the Galilean, who was a radical. He was totally against the Romans, he was all for, you know, burning, pillaging, plundering, and killing every single one of them and creating his revolution. Okay? Paul's. Jesus was not this revolutionary person. Well, of course, Judas the Galilean was executed in 19 A.D. By Pilate. Right. And the thing is, is that the Jerusalem Ecclesia began to put it around that their two or three or four or more uh, revolutionary leaders were going to be resurrected or had been resurrected. They had seen them and that they had been told, promised, that they were going to come with God to destroy the Romans any day now, any day now. And this is one of the reasons why at the time of the Great Revolt in Judea, why there was, you know, why there was so much confidence on the part of the Jews that they would stand up against the Romans as they did, because they firmly believed that God, their God, with their messiahs, and their messiahs weren't gods. They were human men who had died and had been resurrected by God and we're going to come back with God and whoop up on the Romans. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what they believe in. Paul did not believe this. Paul had a completely different story and a completely different Messiah. He says uh <clears throat> further on he says are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clear who he's talking about. So, the point is, the end result of that is, is, Paul, son of God, was not Judas the Galilean or any other Jewish figure, despite the fact that later redactors have tried to make it appear that they were one and the same. In Galatians, he announces, I, you know, my announces himself, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, and then accuses his readers. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserted, the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be under God cursed. And then he continues, I want you to know, brothers and sisters that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Hmm. And then further on, when he's talking about his second trip to Jerusalem, he mentions the leaders of the Jerusalem Ecclesia specifically making the side comment, as for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. They added nothing to my message. His message was totally, completely, wholly different, Mm -hmm. just absolutely, completely different from what was going on in that Jerusalem Ecclesia. There was never the twain shall meet, no matter what the book of Acts says. Mm. So he also says, his opponents finally come into focus, and he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to to the circumcision group and based on the way this group, this James gang as I call them, spied on Paul hounded him, interfered with his work and his groups and the way he responded to them in his letters, it is obvious it's obvious Paul was not preaching the same Christ and the Jerusalem group was becoming more and more hostile about it it seems clear from what we know based on all the discussion that Paul could not have been ignorant of Judas the Galilean and his fourth philosophy, or that he and possibly other dead rebel leaders was most likely the messianic figure preached by the Jerusalem Ecclesia. But this is obviously not the Messiah who inspired Paul. Mm -hmm. The real character on whom the Jewish Jesus was loosely modeled was of absolutely no interest to Paul. That in and of itself is an astonishing thing, but that realization leaves us free to try to discover exactly what it was that drove Paul because it's clear he wasn't myth-making or running a con job. He was utterly devoted to his mission, body, and soul. And since Paul is ultimately the author of the main Christian theology and Christology. We should very much want to know what he was thinking. Mm.
2: Um, Do you want to take a question from a caller? Okay. This is Stephen from Tampa Bay.
4: Hi, Stephen. (coughs) Yes. Hello. Thank you. Very intriguing um, theses that you have developed in your book and, um, I would definitely recommend that people uh, pick it up because um, it's not very often that you um, are exposed to in our culture something as heretical as um, some of your suppositions that you're presenting to us. And um, I welcome it because it it appears that you're a person of good spirit, and uh, what I mean by that is um, just general beneficence and um, goodwill. And I can tell that presented, but. I would say this um in that we're about 5 days from Christmas you you've totally ruined my Christmas and um, but you know <laughs> oh, what I'm
0: going I'm going to give it back to you in a minute just hold on okay <laughs> I'm
4: going to give it you back know what? to you at least I have my belief in Santa still firm okay and Yeah
2: uh that's, that's important
4: No but uh, I w- I would just make the general comment um it's interesting um it's interesting when you when you think back on those days and you re- review these historical texts um how interfused politics and religion were they were they were not really just as separate mm-hmm. and um and you could you know religion still has a huge function in our society today and um i am i am um you know i i'm well I call myself a christian and um but at the same time I, I really don't don't believe it and i know that sounds absurd um, i used to believe until i was about 24 that i was damned to hell and um um you know so i i investigated further and i was able to you know I, my beliefs have changed and um i'm not damned to hell i know that but um what i think is very interesting is that um i heard somebody say one time that um the historical figure of Jesus is actually an amalgam of different figures of that historical period that were woven together um through storytelling and then mm-hmm. this the uh, um and then it became uh the religion of Christianity became um intertwined with the Roman uh the, the empire and um you know I just think it's it's I just wanted to make that comment but um mm-hmm. I, my personal belief is um that history doesn't exist as we think it does as far as um, 100% truth um, ever existing. Mm-hmm. I believe that history, um, I believe that our concept of time is highly distorted in past, present, and future coexist at one time, and history is never written in stone. It can be amended, and um,
3: mm-hmm.
4: so I, I know that's kind of a, it's it kind of a freaky... Yeah, it's kind of a freaky uh, idea. I can't really wrap my mind around it, but uh I just I, I really don't believe in any kind of uh narrative as being 100% true, quote unquote.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
4: believe that I believe that we need belief, you know, for grounding or else we couldn't exist, you know, in in, in any type of cohesion as a society. Um, but at the same time, I think that we're, we're – I'm just going to leave this last comment and hang up. But um, I believe that we're at a very interesting age where people are coming to see that these things are not 100% true, but we still, co- you know, we still as a society need to have some coherence
3: mm-hmm. so we, we,
4: we, we grasp on to, uh, you know, our beliefs, but I believe our beliefs are ever, ever, are ever more tenuous as we continue, and that's the kind of malaise that's the situation that we're in right now. But anyway, I just wanted to say thank you for uh,
2: presenting Steven, this book. I, and,
4: yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for your comments. But I just wanted to say you should check out Paleo Christianity.
4: What's that again?
2: Paleo Christianity.
4: Oh, Paleo Christianity. Okay.
2: Look it up in the web.
4: Yeah, I will I will do that in um Merry Um Christmas, okay? <laughs> all
2: right. Same to you. Anyway.
4: All right, God bless. Have Take a good care. one. Bye.
2: Bye. See you, season. Uh we'll just go straight to uh, Jimmy from New York here. He's been waiting for twelve minutes. Hi, Jimmy.
5: Hi, how are you all?
2: Not too bad. How's yourself?
5: Hey, I'm okay. You know New York is uh comes with its own challenges, but we'll be okay. okay. Um I am and enjoying I Oh, yeah, New York. I'm in New York City, so the amount of uh, <laughs> drama Even is worse. heightened. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm enjoying the show. I would like to say that at the core, the the word God itself comes from a pagan group, and God originally was Gudan, G-H-U-D-A-N. It came from a proto-Germanic uh, group of tribes. Um, Also, I want to suggest that there was no J in ancient Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, nor Egyptian. So the notion that the so-called Messiah would be named Jesus is really a mix of translation and transliteration. What happens over history is ancient myths are taken by other cultures. They then utilize their language typically to describe something that they did not create. Much of what we learn is mythology and cosmology, which was often misconstrued and misunderstood by ancient cultures who didn't have the advanced tools that we have. So I am not a religious person nor spiritual, but I do respect people's right to believe. I just ask that people dig deeply and ask as many questions as they can of their so-called preachers and sages in the mosque Et cetera, Because you know we have our own brain and we have a right to question. And I'm appreciating listening. I, I love discussions where we're able to talk, agree on some points, disagree on some, and walk away without you know a military uh, intervention or heads being <laughs> cut off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well
2: said, Jimmy. Thanks for your call.
5: Thank you. You all have a great day.
2: You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Um, yeah, so
0: So we left off on wanting to discover what Paul was thinking. And there are enough, believe it or not, there are enough clues in his letters that you can find, figure it out. And, of course, if you really know a good deal about what was going on in the background, what was available in the culture, what other people were writing and saying, the Dead Sea Scrolls have helped a lot with that, the Nag Hammadi Library have given us you know, a treasure trove of texts to compare to the Christian text. And, uh, you know, a lot of conclusions can be inferred from the, from those writings. And at the time, there was a lot of apocalypticism going on. Mm-hmm. And this was mainly coming from the Jews. And, for example, uh, the Gnostic texts were uh, originally uh, begun, Gnosticism was originally done by disaffected Jews, Jews who... Um, no longer believed in their religion, and uh, uh, so that in itself is is an interesting point. But they they were working on this on these uh, working out along with the Middle Platonists of the time uh, that they were working out. You know what is between us and God. You know what are the levels of the universe. You know, because the idea was that God was so high and holy and pure that he could not possibly have any contact or direct connection with human beings because it would sully him. Therefore, they developed these layers and levels, these cosmologies that uh, were populated by all kinds of beings, and it was like an angelology. They had a very highly developed angelology, and much of this was developed uh, by the Jews in Jewish literature. And we have just read Paul's words. You know, I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. You know, he grew up in this environment. He was exposed to these highly developed angelologies and the ideas of the multilayered universe. You know, never mind that most of this was borrowed by the Jews from Greek speculations, Greek philosophical speculations. It was part of the intellectual environment um, mm-hmm. of, of the time. So Paul based on what he writes in his letters, he was engaged in a battle against these obviously terrifying forces and his vision was one where a single being could stand against this series of worlds lower than God himself and act as the defender and redeemer of humanity. Um, Paul's probably main influence was uh, a work called The Ascension of Isaiah. The Ascension of Isaiah has been made available thanks to the um, Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, he had a revelation very similar uh, to the revelation revealed in The Ascension of Isaiah. Uh, In 1 Corinthians he tells that God has revealed marvelous things to him things that he adds which pertain to our salvation to god's gift to us the purpose of this descent and reascent is given in the passage from colossians by the blood of his cross he laid the basis for reconciling all things in heaven and earth to the father by his death and resurrection he broke the power of those angels who opposed god and also put an end to man's dependence on angels good or bad man can now commune with god via jesus without other intermediaries Paul declares we need no longer be slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe, that no spirit need now separate us from the love of God, and that the rulers of this world are declining to their end. And the references to Satan and his angels. And in the passage from Corinthians, Paul is thus saying that it is these wicked creatures who crucified the Lord of glory, not knowing who he was. So he says... Uh, Paul describes in Colossians how they were tricked and vanquished, having put off from himself the principalities and the powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. The New English Bible translates it, he made a spectacle of the cosmic powers and authorities and led them as captives in his triumphal procession. Hmm. Now, a triumphal procession was a very Roman ceremonial act Mm -hmm. so in the book of Isaiah regular book of Isaiah not the ascension of Isaiah we find what was driving Paul as many people know Messiah simply means anointed one and can apply to priests, kings, prophets and it is in Isaiah that we find that the only non-Jew in the Old Testament who was identified as the Messiah or the anointed one of Yahweh was Cyrus Cyrus So, Paul describes his call to be an apostle, where he says, when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterward I returned to Damascus. There's a clear relationship between this text and the formulation of the words of it to Isaiah 49 where it says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He had spoken my name. And there are numerous places where Paul identifies with the Deuterocanonical servant of God and appears to have planned his mission based on this text. In in Josephus, we learn that the territory where Paul got his revelation was an area where there were Essene groups settled. Paul's itinerary was governed by Isaiah 66, which says, And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, the Lydians, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. So it seems that Paul was convinced that he was born, that he was living this plan for the Gentiles to be brought under the fatherhood of the Jewish God, but that... The anointed one who was to effect this event was this Christ on the cross, or Caesar on the trophy. So anyhow, I go into that in some detail in the book, and you will see how it has been worked out that uh, Paul was following a definite plan of Isaiah, and that he was doing exactly what Isaiah had Presented when he talked about Cyrus, who was called God's anointed, who was designed and qualified for his great service by God himself. And we see God condemning those who criticize the fact that he has chosen a non Jew to do his work. God says, Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Which we find echoed in Romans, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is Forms say to the one who formed it, "Why did you make me thus?" Does not the potter have the right to make out the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Mm-hmm. So, as you can see, there is a really good case to be made for Paul preaching Caesar as
5: Jesus. Mm-hmm. But,
0: and as, as our caller said, there was no J; it was Jesus. And just as there was no J for Julius Caesar either, it was Julius.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it wasn't even pronounced Caesar; it was pronounced Kaiser,
2: Julius Kaiser. But right. you know, are, are you suggesting that Paul was actually practicing uh, the kind of doctrine of um, you know, Jesus, or sorry, Julius Caesar as, as a savior uh, by name, directly? Yeah. Yes, he wasn't doing it in a veiled way to <clears throat> to not alienate I th- I people. I think,
0: well, he t- in one of the texts it says that when he came down, he was given the name of Jesus, you know, the highest name. That is Joshua, actually, mm. or Yeshua, you know, so Yeshua,
3: mm.
0: and Yeshua means Savior. So Caesar, he re- you know, he renamed Julius Caesar mm. Yeshua, Christus, is the Savior the anointed
2: Savior. Because it possibly did that to, to, in an effort not to alienate certain people or to try and broaden yes, the appeal of yes, the religion? Yes, because
0: there is also considerable evidence that Paul taught one thing outwardly and other things privately to his groups. Yeah. I mean, he says so clearly in a number of places in his epistles uh, that that's what he's doing. And he also mentions in uh, one place in Galatians, you know, did you not you know, basically he was saying, you know, what was what you witnessed mm. Christ crucified. In other words, he was putting on mystery plays. He was undoubtedly putting on a passion play. Mm.
2: But there was certainly a, a spiritual uh aspect to what Paul was teaching. Um, Absolutely. And, and, but he didn't necessarily he wouldn't have gotten that from the life of Judas Caesar, for example. Judas Caesar was about mercy, compassion, good deeds. That kind of thing—it was very much earthly. No, I mean Caesar didn't himself, didn't, uh, didn't uh, promote or or represent any kind of well, okay, abstract spiritual ideas.
0: Here's uh here's something here. Let me let me get to it if I can find it. Yes, okay, Saint Ignatius. Uh, in one of his homilies, includes an interesting detail, which was something that must have been commonly believed at the time, even though Ignatius was probably involved with the creating of the story of an earthly Jesus, you know, but that's a whole other story. But he wrote Now the virginity of Mary was hidden from the prince of this world, as was also her offspring and the death of the Lord, three mysteries of renown which were wrought in silence by God. Now, right here, he's saying that this was all private. Nobody knew about it Mm -hmm. because, of course, he's building his case for his Jewish Jesus. How then was he manifested to the world? A star shone forth in heaven above all the other stars, the light of which was inexpressible while Mm -hmm. its novelty struck men with astonishment. And all the rest of the stars with the sun and the moon formed a chorus to this star, and its light was exceedingly great above them all, and there was agitation felt as to whence this new spectacle came. So unlike everything else above, hence every kind of magic was destroyed, and every bond of wickedness disappeared, ignorance was removed, and the old kingdom abolished when God appeared in human form for the renewal of eternal life. <coughs> this is incompatible with the gospel accounts where Jesus was known to the world and Satan as was his death. Ignatius, also, Ignatius shows no familiarity with Matthew or Luke's birth story for Jesus, Bethlehem, the star in the east, the magi, shepherds, etc. He associates this remarkable celestial event with the resurrection after his death when he defeats the forces of darkness. Ignatius appears to be saying this is how Jesus manifested to the world not as a Galilean preacher, but as a bright light in heaven. Mm. That is obviously what was understood at the time, even though Ignatius and Polycarp and others were in the process of creating an earthly Jesus. But it was understood at the time that the star relationship to this messianic individual happened after his death. And who had the great comet after his death, at his funeral games? Mm -hmm. Jesus. Julius Caesar exactly
1: Uh,
2: I just wanted to go back to what you mentioned at the very beginning which was um, Mithraism and I mean this was Mithraic mysteries were practiced in the 1st century A.D., the 1st to 4th century A.D., so... You know. I
0: have to tell you, I lost interest in Mithraism. Yeah. But, but, but I will tell you what I concluded about it. Yeah. I think it was kind of like uh, the Freemasons.
2: Well, you, you speculated that it had something to do... With, was was Caesar or was Julius Caesar promoting it during his lifetime? No, scriptures?
0: I don't think he was. I don't think he had anything to do mm-hmm. with it. I think that... Uh, I think that they, some of these things were attached to his name right. afterwards because but, Mithraism is
2: just like it was like a club. It was around at the time, though. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it, I mean, because there's a link between Mithraism and uh, Zoroastrianism. I mean, that's supposedly where they take their kind of spiritual least well, from.
0: Well, wait. Not really. No. No, that was that was the early interpretation of Mithraism, mm. um, and on. Um, a lot of people, who was it? Franz Cumont, uh, wrote a lot about it, interpreting it from the Zoroastrian point of view, or from the Persian religion point of view, or the Persian mythos. And uh, the more the more recent work on that has been that it was um, it was formed. It was kind of like they used the fact that they had these wars going on with Mithridates
3: mm.
0: Romans at the time of of the formation of this that there were a lot of um uh rebels and rebellions and pirates and so on and so forth and they formed this Mithras cult mm. Mm. you know as a counter a countermeasure against
2: the rebellions and the
0: whatever. But, you know, that I'll go into that at some other time but yeah. no, you know, I
2: just thought the Zoroastrian uh, Beliefs were kind of interesting because they're fairly, they're general in the sense of you know force of good and evil and must live a good life to uh, you know they're fairly in line with a, kind of a almost gnostic well,
0: type, the, you know, well,
3: that's,
2: religion. No,
0: that's if you if you myth you, you can't you can't compare Mithraism to. Any Zoroastrian things? Mm. I mean, it's not even the same thing,
2: right? But officially, there's supposedly a link between them, right? I mean, it's like,
0: well, no, that was the old view. The old view. That's the old view,
2: yeah. <clears throat> so, but I suppose what i what I'm what I was thinking was that you know you have Paul trying to look at this from a as, as our caller Jonathan mentioned, you know, religion is very much linked today, uh, or has always been very much linked with politics and political situation. at any given time. You know, when you look at look at today, and you look at politics, and you can't get any very far in politics today, world politics, before bumping straight into uh, Islam, you know. And you kind of assume that at times of, of, of chaos and crisis, that that's what's, Kind of fueling it in somewhere, that's what's behind it, you know. So maybe this was true, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. And you have Paul going around, and there's a plethora of different beliefs, etc., uh, of of different types of religious beliefs, or, or even kind of not so religious, more kind of um, political or social beliefs. And he, he has this, uh, he goes on a mission, and he tries to, to kind of incorporate as much of little elements of all of these different uh belief systems that are that are around at the time
0: i don't know if he was consciously doing it i think uh i think he had his vision i think he probably attended a a passion play of julius caesar and he'd been feverishly you know i mean paul was obviously pretty uh pretty well into this angelology and Mm -hmm. this apocalyptic literature and he has kind of like a fevered imagination i mean his his nature comes through in his letters.
2: Where would he have got his ap- apocalyptic literature from?
0: Well, it was all over the place. Right, yeah. Jews were writing it right and left. Right. I mean, there was so much of that stuff going on. I mean, it was it was the talk of the day. Mm. And you could even say that these early uh, so-called Christians, the early Jerusalem Ecclesia, the Dead Sea Scroll people, mm. you know, the they were serious apocalypticists, and they were... Seriously intent on destroying the Romans or rebelling against the Romans, so you could almost say that they were the, the, the Islamic fundamentalists of their day. Right, and they were, you know, they were going to kill, murder, maim, destroy, you know, anybody. Mm. You know who didn't
2: believe as they believed, and there wasn't one particular li- religion that, or particular religion that they s- uh, subscribed to. Well, that, well, an pop- apocalyptic uh, well, teaching.
0: Well, it was it was their variation on Judaism, but right. Judaism had many variations. Mm. It, it allowed for that. It had mm. Sadducees, Pharisees, on like Islam today. You just, yeah. yeah, you know, there's Sunni, Shiites. You know, mm. what do you, what do you call Wahhabis and,
3: mm. well.
0: and so on and so forth, but. I want to get a little piece here that i'm I'm not going to give you everything. Give everything away from the book but uh I've got uh uh something from Virgil who describes the unusual events that took place following caesar's assassination and this is going back to the star imagery and he wrote, Who dare say the sun is false?" He and no other warns us when dark uprisings threaten, when treachery and hidden wars are gathering strength. He and no other was moved to pity Rome on the day that Caesar died, when he veiled his radiance in gloom and darkness, and a godless age feared everlasting night. Yet in this hour, earth also and the plains of ocean, ill boding dogs and birds that spell mischief, sent signs which heralded disaster. How oft before our eyes did Etna deluge the fields of the Cyclophese with a torrent from her burst furnaces, hurling thereon balls of fire and molten rocks. Germany heard the noise of battle sweep across the sky, and even without precedent, the Alps rocked with earthquakes. A voice boomed through the silent groves for all to hear. A deafening voice and phantoms of unearthly power were seen in the falling darkness, Horror beyond words, beasts uttered human speech. Rivers stood still, the earth gaped open, and the temples ivory images wept for grief, and beads of sweat covered bronze statues. King of waterways, the Po swept forests along in the swirl of his frenzied current, carrying with him over the plain cattle and stalls alike. Nor, in that same hour, did sinister filaments cease to appear and ominous entrails or blood to flow from wells. Or our hillside towns to echo all night with the howl of wolves. Never fell more lightning from a cloudless sky. Never was comets'
2: alarming glare so often seen. Hmm. It sounds like a concentration of events over the past few years that have been happening on this planet. Yeah? Well, find just erupted two weeks ago. Yeah. Well,
0: this is um, this is uh, pretty much obviously this was written long before the Gospels were, and you can see quite clearly where they got some of the. Apocalyptic ideas, stuff so uh, uh, so the, the ideas stuff. of what uh, uh, happened at the time Jesus died, and of course, you know it's well known that there really was a comet at Caesar's funeral game, and I read a study recently where it shows that there was a spike in the uh, Greenland ice cores of um, volcanic matter in the atmosphere. Uh, at the time of Caesar's death, so we have scientific confirmation that it happened when Caesar died, and there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that anything of any type, shape, form, or fashion happened when the so-called Jesus died in 29 or 30 A.D., and in fact, Pliny the Elder and Seneca, who both wrote books about natural history, and we recorded every uh, comet or earthquake, commented on all those kinds of things that were available to them uh, in the literature of the time, never mentioned anything happening uh, you know, all over the world, mm-hmm. as was claimed in 3029 or 30 AD for Jesus. But they all commented on the terrible disastrous events that happened at the time of the death of Caesar.
2: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and... I mean, we can understand. Okay, so we can understand the idea of where the idea of an apocalypse or end of the world comes from, but where does the idea of a savior come from? I mean, it's because when we talk about Julius Caesar, he didn't preach. Well, any savior
0: this or, was this was uh, an interesting development, I think, in the in the uh, in the Gnostic slash um, Dead Sea Scrolls. Type literature, because if you read the Nag Hammadi text and then you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, you see certain correspondences, and of course there are people who argue against it because they want to maintain the purity, but, uh, you know, it's fairly obvious that there were some correspondences. Now, the difference was, was that the Dead Sea scroll, scroll people, they were speculating in these apocalyptic lines. Um with the retention of the Old Testament as and the Old Testament God as being, you know, supreme. Mm. The Gnostics, on the other hand, turned everything around. They were disaffected. They were speculating. Uh, but the Jewish God became something like a demon. Then he was the the Archon of Darkness, or he was the Demiurge, mm. creator who didn't know what he was doing. That sort of thing. So there were these, these two different uh, trajectories that these groups take. But they kind of started with the same basic ideas, and they were like I said, they were basically speculating based on some of the middle platonic ideas of the levels of the universe and the creatures and so forth in there, so you have all these angels and creatures and all this kind of stuff, and these levels of the universe and you know really it's considering the some of the stuff we've mm-hmm. gotten into is may not be so crazy right, but um. Which is why I find Paul so interesting, mm. you know, if this is what he was talking about and if he was convinced that Julius Caesar was the one who could stand between humanity and the evil archons of darkness right. and, and the, you know, the fallen angels and so forth, now maybe he wasn't well,
2: crazy. By preaching but a, a fairly a fairly simple and basic uh, code of living as opposed to uh, effectively teaching people that live a good life and that's, how, that's the path to, sa- to, to being saved.
0: Well, he had he had the idea, and this this idea of a Messiah, well, you know, Messiah is just an anointed one. Yeah, the idea of somebody being a savior is more actually a Roman concept than it was uh, originally a Jewish concept, because, of course, you know, their thing was, you know, adhere to your God. You've got a covenant. You'd be good. God will take care of you. But, of mm-hmm. course, they found out that didn't work, which is why the Gnostic, the Jewish Gnostics have started to begin with. They were disaffected from Judaism. Um but uh the idea of the patron system
3: mm-hmm.
0: was very, very Roman. You know you are there for your patron, your patron takes care of you mm. i mean it was it was kind of a mafia of, you know, of the ancient world uh you uh, you, you had bonds of, of uh of of service it was in a sense kind of early feudalism even mm. Mm.
2: Um, and in times of of extreme stress and crisis with the you know earth change type things going on, you can say people might have parlayed that into, eventually into the idea of, well they felt certainly that they needed to be saved, so if they could parlay that into uh, some idea of a savior or some great person in the past who, but as you said maybe it, it it's more likely that it was uh, the life of Caesar and what that represented for certain people.
0: Well he was so he can't. was so outstanding a human being so. I mean, he was probably the greatest human being who ever lived, based on everything I've read. Mm. And I mean, you have to sometimes read through his critics, you know, who didn't understand what he was doing. But when they give you the the data and the information, you know, and even if his critics are saying good things about him, even though they hate him, you know, and didn't understand him, you you, you kind of get the full picture. So I feel fairly confident saying he was probably the greatest human being who ever lived. Mm. And, you know, had he been born in our times, you know, maybe he would have been, you know, even greater. I don't know. It's just – but the thing is is that um, in very ancient times, it was thought that uh, the only people who were saved or who went to heaven, you know, or the concept of heaven or went up to the stars or to be with the gods or whatever were were great heroes, people who did great deeds. Mm Mm-hmm. And the only way that the common ordinary person had uh of getting to you know having a life after death was if they were firmly attached to a hero in some way mm-hmm. or they paid cult to a hero and mm-hmm. asked this hero to remember them mhm. Uh, So it was kind of like a a basic idea, a very Mm -hmm. early religious idea, Mm -hmm. because the common person, unless they were a hero and there weren't too many heroes, Mm -hmm. you know, had no chance of a a life after death. And there's all kinds of inscriptions and, uh, you know, papyri and things inscribed on little gold things that are buried with people, you know, where they uh, they tell their particular cult object, you know, please remember me, I did this and that and the other thing, I'm one of yours, I, you know, I I uh, performed the rites, I mm-hmm. I did this or that, you know, so please remember me and, and, and grant me, you know, eternal life with you or life after death or whatever. So these ideas developed gradually uh, as to whether and how an ordinary person could live after death because for a very long time there was no life after death, there was just uh you know the place of the dead. It was kind of like this shadowy place, uh, you know, under the earth. And and period, And the, you know, the the main thing that people wanted to do was make sure that the dead didn't turn into marauding ghosts. You know, so you mm-hmm. gotta you gotta have a family. You gotta have people, you know, who take care of you after you're dead and and bring you food once a year or however often, and or pour out a libation on the ground in your behalf and so forth. So it's uh, I mean, it's the idea of the patron. The hero uh, being able to stand up for you to fight your battles for you as, as Caesar did, and and he he was famous in his time for you know never uh, turning away somebody who was deserving or mm-hmm. um, you know his generosity was he was famous for his generosity for the help he gave to people and for Always fulfilling his word, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, it was. It was a common concept at the time. So Paul, all these ideas were in Paul's head. They were in the air he breathed. The Apocalypticism, the Jewish ideas. He was obviously a diaspora Jew. He was not born in Jerusalem. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He didn't. He was only in Jerusalem twice: once for two weeks, and once for a few days. So, you know, he he was not like a Jerusalem Jew. He was a diaspora Jew. He was more at home with the, with the Gentiles than he was with any Jews. And that's why I say I doubt that Eisenman is correct when he says that uh, Paul was the liar of the Dead Sea Scrolls because Paul wasn't even on on their radar. If there was some, you know, and I, I suggest in this book that if there was anybody who was a liar, according to the Dead Sea Scroll people, it was probably Josephus.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, so how do you, um, you promised to give Christmas back to Jonathan and everybody else listening. So how do we get some Christmas cheer back in? And what is exactly Christmas cheer after everything you just told us?
0: Well, you should know that Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festival in honor of the deity Saturn. Mm-hmm. And it was held on the 17th of December of the Julian calendar and later expanded the festivities through to the 23rd of December. Mm-hmm. It was celebrated with the sacrifice at the Temple of Saturn in the Roman Forum and a public banquet, followed by private gift-giving, continual partying, and a carnival atmosphere that overturned all social norms. Gambling was permitted... Masters served the slaves. The poet Catalyst called it the best of days.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And it was the best known of Roman holidays. Everybody loved it. Everybody wanted it. Everybody, you know, was really – and I mean, this was back from like, you know, the 5th century B.C. Mm -hmm. when this was instituted. And the reason was was because during the reign of Saturn was the Golden Age. And during the Golden Age, everybody was equal – Everybody had all they wanted and all they needed. Everybody mm-hmm. was happy. Everybody treated everybody well. And therefore, during the festival of Saturnalia, that's how you were supposed to act. You were supposed to have a good time,
2: gifts. As if it was a golden age.
0: Act as if you were living in, in the golden, golden age. You were, you were reviving the golden age mm-hmm. for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's entirely fitting that a Roman festival, the festival that... And, and they say, of course, that it, it began before, you know, running up in the days before the the uh, winter solstice. Mm-hmm. And that was because they began to party and to, you know, to bring the sun back, you know, mm-hmm. to the festivals of lights and all these kinds of things. So it says... Uh, Although probably the best-known Roman holiday, Saturnalia as a whole is not described from beginning to end in any single ancient source. Our modern understanding of it has to be pieced together from different accounts dealing with various aspects. Um, We have here an extract from a letter of Seneca, who looked forward to the holiday somewhat tentatively. He wrote... It's now the month of December when the greater part of the city is in a bustle. Loose rains are given to public dissipation. Everywhere you hear the sound of great preparations as if there were some real difference between the days devoted to Saturn and those for transacting business. Were you here, I would willingly confer with you as to the plan of our conduct, whether we should ever in our usual way or, to avoid singularity, both take a better supper and throw off the toga,
2: mm.
0: because throwing off the toga was part of the Saturnalia celebration. Does that
2: mean running around naked?
0: Well, I don't <laughs> think so exactly. And
2: yeah, well, we need we need something on costumes here. What should we be wearing?
0: Uh, well, I'd say probably white tunics, because okay. under their toga. Uh, Most Romans wore tunics in the Greek style after they got a little more civilized. I mean, I know that uh, Cato, uh, the younger, uh, went around in a toga with nothing else on Mm. because he was, you know, uh, and he went barefoot because he was trying to prove how righteous he was. Mm.
2: But uh, likely scared people instead.
0: Pliny describes a secluded suite of rooms in his villa which he retreated to, especially during the Saturnalia, when the rest of the house is noisy with the holiday and festive cries. This way I don't hamper the games of my people and they don't hinder my work or my studies. So he was <laughs> he was a real wet blanket. He was a humbug. <laughs> he was, humbug. Yeah. So, that does
2: sound like Christmas.
0: So it seems that they also invented Christmas cards because – Verses were written to accompany the little token gifts. And and what they gave mostly were token gifts. You know, it was was like the more you thought of somebody, the smaller the gift would be. It was Mm. only people who were really trying to impress somebody that bought big expensive things. Mm. And you were supposed to attach, uh, you know, uh, written, handwritten verses for the occasion to your gift. So Mm. it was like the early form of the Christmas card. So... In any event, let's see if we can find anything else here. That, uh, by the late Republic, the private festivities of the Saturnalia had expanded to seven days. And December 17th was the first day. So it was only after Christianity was adopted as the state religion in the 4th century that the birth of Jesus was attached to this festival because they were basically trying to co-opt it for their own
2: purpose. In the fourth century. Mm -hmm. So 400 years, almost 400 years after the supposed birth of Jesus. 300 years. 300 years. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
0: And anyhow, the Mishnah and the Talmud describe a pagan festival called Saturna, which occurs for eight days before the winter solstice. It's followed, and this was probably established and created or developed by some diaspora Jews, or Jews who had been in contact with the whole Roman festival, but they apparently liked it pretty well. It is followed for eight days after the solstice with a festival called Kalenda, culminating with the Kalends of January. The Talmud ascribes the origins of this festival to Adam. Adam who saw that the days were getting shorter and thought it was punishment for his sins, so he was afraid that the world was returning to chaos and emptiness, so he sat and fasted for eight days. Well, what do you say? It's a Talmud. I mean, yeah. He don't know how to party. Once he saw that the days were getting longer again, he realized that this was the natural cycle of the world, so he made eight days of celebration. The Talmud states that this festival was later turned into a pagan festival. So basically, they're claiming it
3: mm-hmm. as
0: having you know, created it. Mm. Uh, uh, no comment.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> uh, in the beginning of December, an ancient text writes, the farmer should have finished his autumn planting, and now with the approach of the winter... Saturnus, the god of seed and sowing, is honored with a festival. In Cicero's time, it lasted seven days. Augustus was a, you know, he limited it to three days because he was a real, I don't know. Scrooge. He was a Scrooge, no doubt about it. Claudius um, restored it. So there is a lot of reason to be happy with this most popular holiday of the Roman year. As noted, Catalyst describes it as the best of days. And let's see, what else do we have for it? Then there are guest gifts. Restrictions were relaxed. The social order inverted. Everything was fun. Felt caps were worn, symbolizing the freedom of the season. So that must be where the little... Uh, pointed Santa Claus hat comes from because these felt caps that they wore to symbolize freedom were the pointed uh, uh, the pointed cap of uh, actually Mithras. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, slaves were treated as equal, um, etc. Equality was temporary, of course. Ah, uh, no, oh dear. That gets into some ugly stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to talk about that. (laughs) I'm flipping some pages here, looking at all the different things I've collected. Um, That's enough of that. You now know that Saturnalia is the best way to look at it. And there's no way that we can, you know, connect it to Caesar... Anything in his life except for the fact that uh, when when he uh, brought in his new calendar and a couple of days were added to the month of December, uh, he just moved the day to the 17th, and that was the day when Saturnalia began. And so 17th, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. So you basically celebrate until the solstice. And I guess you could celebrate after the solstice,
2: Yeah, well, if people could make up their festivals in ancient times, then certainly we can do it today, you know. I mean, we can carry on tradition to a certain extent, but we can expand on it.
0: Well, I think it's great because, you know, at at Saturnalia, you can do karaoke. You can maybe have a little champagne. You can have this big feast because I'm all about the feast part. Yes, (laughs) And that was kind of the main thing about it. And I think that people would be really unhappy if they didn't have their feast part, you know, their turkey or ham or goose or duck or whatever mm-hmm. with their dressing and their and the gravy and, mm-hmm. their, and their cakes and pies because having a big feast was mainly what the Romans were doing. Mm-hmm. And they were partying and giving gifts to each other and writing verses for each other and running around and just acting generally jolly. So I think that's what we all should do.
3: Yeah. But we
0: shouldn't deceive ourselves that it's the birthday of anybody like Jesus, and it's certainly not Caesar's birthday. His birthday is in July. Mm-hmm. So I don't see any reason why one couldn't have a little celebration in the middle of July. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, uh, there you have it, folks. Um, we've taken with one hand and given back, given back with another. Uh, in a more unpresented situation, perhaps in a more expansive and kind of open way, uh, rather than limiting it to the birth of one little baby who's going to save the world forever and ever, over and over and over again.
0: The only person who can do that is Caesar.
2: Right. So Caesar would have to come back, but there's not much chance of that happening. Um, so, Yeah. So, well, I think we'll, uh, yeah, unless you've got something else to say, Laura, I think we'll leave it there for this week.
0: I say Eo Saturnalia.
2: Eo Saturnalia. What does that mean?
0: That means.
2: Merry Saturnalia? More or less, yes. Oh, Eo Saturnalia. There you go. That's a radical departure from uh, Merry Christmas, but why not? They're just words after uh, all. And party, party party, dudes. Party hardy, Have fun. And, uh, yeah, uh, celebrate the bounty of the earth that's available, I mean, what are you going to do? No point in getting your sackcloth on and beating yourself every day. Um, But remember, I suppose, um, the uh, the important part, which is community and sharing with like-minded people and loving each other and having fun with each other. I mean, what else is there at the end of the day? What else is there to, to do in this life other than learn and grow and share and be good to each other and be everything that the powers that be in this world are not effectively. Uh, so I think that should be the Christmas message. Well said, Joe. And that can be your stand against the powers in this world to represent everything they do not. And it's pretty obvious what they represent, so go for it.
0: Ave, Caesar.
2: Ave, Dios septimede. Alright folks, uh thank you Laura for coming on and uh elucidating all sorts of things and we will uh be back next week with Next year, Joe. Is it next year? Oh sorry, news um news uh lobbying here for uh for a Christmas break, which I suppose <laughs> we'll have to have a meeting about that. So we may have a show between may, now and 2016, depending okay. on what happens. But if not, everybody have a good uh, Saturnalia, Saturnalia, solstice, whatever time you want to call it. Uh, and uh, yeah, we might see it. We'll probably see you again then in the may, in New Year. Um, yeah. So thanks for callers. Thanks to chatters and everybody else. Hope you all enjoyed the show. We'll be back next week or next year. Or <laughs> we'll next see. Whichever comes first. Bye. Bye, you